If you're listening and you own a small business or a large business, you know, you need to make sure that you're working with a mortgage broker. And the reason, and we'll get into in a minute, you know, the difference between a mortgage broker and a mortgage banker. But the main reason I I say that right now is because as a self-employed borrower, you want options. You want to know that there's different ways to structure your loan and that there's all different lenders that are going to really look at your income different ways. Will you outlast your money? Do you stay awake at night worrying about providing for your family? Are you making the right decisions about your investments? There are many life-changing decisions that arise and questions you want answered when going through divorce or after you've received your settlement. This is the Financially Ever After podcast, where you'll hear stories of women like you and get advice from the industry's top professionals. Here's your award-winning and nationally recognized host, Stacey Francis. Welcome to Financially Ever After. I am your host, Stacey Francis. And today we are talking about real estate, real estate, real estate. Instead of one expert today, we are bringing two experts to you. The first is Seth Feynman, and he's been working in the area of mortgages for over 15 years at Silverfin Capital. In addition to being a licensed, accomplished mortgage loan originator, he also helps manage a fantastic team there. What Seth is most proud of is working one-on-one with clients, finding the best loan product based on their unique situation. That's really important to me because for many of our clients, going through divorce, income is reduced, assets are reduced, and all of a sudden qualifying for a mortgage is not so easy. Our second guest is Mark D. Friedman, who works at Brown, Harris, and Stevens. He's one of the top real estate brokers with his partner there for the last 10 years, winning numerous awards, including top team in 2021. Not only is he an expert about the Manhattan market, but the reason I wanted him to join is his expertise and knowledge of sharing just about buying and selling all over the country. And I have to tell you, make sure you stay to the end because guess what? You're going to find out how you can have lenders fight for your business, how you can put down in your down payment as low as 5%, even 3%. Mark also, he'll share with us, should you wait for interest rates to drop? And what do sellers look for to make sure that you win out over others who want to buy that property? So without further ado, please help me welcome our fantastic guests today, Seth Feynman and Mark D. Freeman. Fantastic. So we are talking about all things real estate in Financially Ever After today. And why is real estate so important? Well, for the majority of couples, it's your number one largest asset. And the decisions that you make about whether you keep the house, you sell the house, buy another, or rent, to be honest, can be the number one factor of what puts you on the path to long-term financial security or unfortunately puts you financially behind. So we are so blessed with our two fantastic experts that we have here today going to be talking to us about everything with regards to financing real estate, buying out your former spouse, buying a new property, selling anything you can imagine. These two know it. And so Seth Feynman, Mark Friedman, love to have you guys each say hi. And I'll be honest, we're just going to dive in because I know we have so much information to go through. Thanks for being here. Thanks Thanks for for having us. I love it. I, I feel like we've got the power team. As you all just heard just a few minutes ago, 
Seth is a mortgage broker and has an expertise of dealing and being able to make sometimes tough situations that most bankers would not be able to make work actually work. And Mark D. Friedman, I've known him for years, been blessed to be able to send a few clients his way, gotten such unbelievable feedback. He is a real estate extraordinaire, a magician, being able to find houses that you can afford, apartments that you can afford, and being able to really make that dream happen. So I'm really excited to have both of you here. I'm going to just jump right in. Seth, we've been able to work together and you've worked magic for a few of our clients where our clients typically, she is not the primary breadwinner. Um, She may have actually stayed home or currently still profession is, is taking care of the kids, which FYI, I think is the hardest profession out there. And she's a great homeowner, but she doesn't, when a bank looks at the financials and doesn't see income, doesn't see a huge number of assets in her name, is that something that is just a no-go? Is she not able to potentially buy out her spouse to own that property? Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be on. There's always two sides to situation when, when unfortunately divorce happens, you're going to have someone who's going to potentially need to keep the home and refinance and someone that's going to be moving out and potentially buying. In the most common of situations where let's say a woman is staying home and going to have to buy out, and I'm using air quotes, her soon-to-be ex, you're correct. It could be a very daunting task if she hasn't been the one who's been on the mortgage for the past several years or however long or even dealt with the financing. So The great news is that we're in a lending world right now and a lending environment that is more open to every type of borrower and every type of situation than ever before. So I've been doing this over 15 years and I've seen from the most strict of lending underwriting guidelines to the loosest there's been. And right now we're in a position where it's more about common sense than ever, which is nice to see. So you have a situation where If a wife is getting divorced, a woman's getting divorced, and she'll be getting, let's say, simple situation where she'll be getting child support or alimony, those are now her new sources of income. So while her ex-husband was her old source of income, she now has the ability to use what she'll be getting in the future, child support, alimony, both of them, as income. And the great thing is the lenders do understand that she hasn't obviously been receiving these for the last several years because they're just getting divorced right now. And that's okay. So unlike other forms of income, like self-employed income, which we'll talk about later, you have to show a history of having that. If someone is in the situation of getting divorced, it's okay. The lender is going to most likely ask for one of two documents. So we're going to have either a separation agreement or a divorce decree. Pretty simple. And in the case where it's just a separation agreement, they might not even be at the final divorce stage yet. That's potentially even better because the whole final divorce decree might list all types of stuff in there that the lenders don't necessarily even want to see or need to see. So the process is very similar to any other refinance. In this case, there'd be a new deed done at closing, removing the husband, keeping the wife on, and a new note done at closing for the new lender with just the wife on. And the husband, so the husband would be removed from all documents pertaining to owning the home at that refinance. Husband then would also be off the mortgage and that new note is, you know, essentially that new mortgage would be just in her name. Correct. And this obviously can be the thing for the husband as well. And in his pursuit of a new home, he doesn't want to have this liability still sitting on his credit. So it is super important yep. to, for the, in that situation say, okay, you know, 
he has to go buy a new home. We understand that we need to get this done quickly and efficiently and make sure she qualifies, get the refinance off his name so he can then go on with his life. Yep. But yeah, in terms of qualifying, it could certainly be a tricky road because maybe there's a situation where she's not getting any alimony or child support and hasn't been working. You know, it's just one of those situations. And what are we going to do? So there are lending options where I, I think you mentioned having to do with your assets. That's another avenue that didn't exist many years ago where the lender will say, okay, you know, she doesn't have any incomes, true income coming in, but in the divorce, she did get $5 million, $10 million, whatever it is. There are many different formulas that all the different banks use to figure out what income would come from those assets. It could be in the form of retirement. It could be in the form of regular stocks and bonds. There's all the, the lenders are very open to using what we call assets as income. So what you're saying is that to a lot of lenders, it doesn't matter if those assets are primarily in retirement in an IRA or a 401k or that they're primarily in a taxable account. I've always just assumed that they discount so they the do. money that's in a, a retirement. Tell me more if, if that's the case. You are correct. The most common view is that they're going to take 70% of the vested value. And then they, because, you know, they're going to factor in, you know, any penalties and taxes and, you know, the market changes and all that stuff. And so, you're talking about the retirement piece, the discount correct. for that retirement piece. Got it. Correct. Got it. You know, if it's a money market account, they might give you 100% value of it. But it gets a little tricky because it also depends on their age. So there's ways where we could actually connect with their CPA and set up a distribution. So if they're of retirement age and they haven't started taking distributions yet, we can say, okay, well, now we're going to start taking distributions. And this is an example of where the bank would say, okay, as long as there's three years worth of distributions, if the person needs 10000 a month, 120000 a year, as long as there's you know 360000 of assets that they've said is, is there and verified, she now technically makes $10,000 a month. And that could go a long way to qualifying for a mortgage. So it's an environment where you don't have to have your traditional W-2 salary income whatsoever yep. to qualify for a loan. There's, yep. there's a lot of different ways for it to happen. And it's important to know that you do have options and that TV and advertising on TV, unfortunately, can be rather misleading. You know, yeah. you're dealing with large retail banks who have billions and billions of dollars and are able to advertise what they want you to see. And that's very different than working with myself as a mortgage broker, which our job is to really make sure that the client gets the proper product, as we call it, with the proper lender and fulfills their goals. So there's a strategy involved every time. Yep. So two quick things before we move on, because I have a couple of questions for you, Mark, too, that I want to jump to. You know, we talked about spousal support, child support as being used for income for purposes of calling for a mortgage. Do you have to have a time duration that you've received? that income, you know, does it need to be, you've received child support and spousal support for six months or a year? Does that matter? No, the good thing is that it doesn't have to have already been in place, but they're going to want to see that in the separation agreement or the divorce decree that they're going to be getting it for at least three years. Okay. And that separation agreement. So typically you're looking at a separation agreement because the divorce decree that there's a lot of other issues that they don't Mm -hmm. agree on. Often a separation agreement is the, all right, this is what we agree on at least. And so you would need to make sure that in that separation, the conversation about child support and spousal support is in there with the numbers that are going to be paid. Because otherwise, it sounds like the lender, if that is not in there, and, and again, this is a legal document, so this has to happen. That's not going to be sufficient if Correct. you don't actually have that done. Okay. 
people many times say to me, oh, we agreed on this, we agreed on that, and that's great, but it's got to be in there. You know, and if it says, it could even go as far in there as saying who's entitled to the rights of the home and, and other homes. So it could be, it could have other stuff in there that could certainly affect qualifying for the loan in a good way. Mm-hmm. We already know if they've already agreed on, let's say they own another property, and if they've already agreed on that property is going to be paid going forward by the husband, many lenders will, will use that. That's a binding agreement. Okay. It's worthwhile to have the conversation with their attorneys going through these documents before they're drafted up. Absolutely. Yeah. No, you actually bring a great point out there, Seth, that not only are they looking at the child support as well as the spousal support, but in some of our agreements, it does specifically state that husband will pay mortgage for mm-hmm. eight years as well as real estate costs, real estate taxes, and insurance, and that that can be helpful. Mark, I want to jump in just to even talk about, have you worked with couples trying to grapple of whether to keep the house or sell? And what are some of the issues that you see that come up? Thanks for having me. I was listening to Seth, and we were talking about the retirement funds. You know, it's a very different situation when you're dealing with co-ops in New York City. He can deal with his with the funds and clearing people for house purchases. But when you're dealing with a co-op, retirement funds, unless you're of a certain age, really don't play in. They don't count as finances, or yeah. money that you can lean on. And for, um, for those of you outside New York, these co-ops, are there any other cities that have a lot of co-ops, Mark? I okay. think Boston has a couple of co-ops. but Florida happens to have a lot now. Yeah, yeah. Okay. it was, it was, you know, the whole idea was invented in New York to really keep certain people out of apartments, buildings. Oh, and that's then, so know, nice. Obviously, so fair nice housing parts. came in. Yeah, exactly. It was mostly for Jews and Black people. But, you know, they changed that years ago. So it's now just financial. Which, issue. I'll be honest, we know can be discriminatory as well. What it is, is these co-op boards. So it's a board of residents that live there. And not only do you have to qualify to get a mortgage, but then you have a second hurdle where the co-op board then gets to decide whether or not exactly. you're a sufficient. Yeah. So I will they tell did, you they, yeah. that I was not having of that, any of that crap, Mark. <laughs> and <laughs> I bought a condo because I was like, I just, I'm going to buy a condo. It's a um, lot easier. So I, I know that that. But you still um, have to do a board package. Yeah, you do. You do. You still have to but kind of put no, your best foot forward. But there's no one's going to say, you know, you can't be here because you make X amount of dollars. Co-op situation is really they find a number, about 26%, usually debt to income ratio, so that they know that you can afford the monthlies and living in New York City. So they yeah. take that into account, which is one of the reasons why when the mortgage bust happened, New York really didn't get affected because everybody was putting 20 to 25% down due to the co-ops. Yeah. And if you think about it, I mean, with that 26% debt to income ratio, just putting real numbers on it, you know, if your income's a million dollars, then they're going to want to make sure that the amount of money you're paying on your mortgage, your, you know, your real estate taxes is no more than 260,000. And if we take that down to a lower number, if you're making a hundred thousand, as your income, they're going to want to see no more than 26,000 earmark that has to go through housing. So that's a really good rule of thumb to kind of think about, to look at, does this really make sense for me? And listen, a lot of people, I'm working with a client right now who is separating from Mm -hmm. his wife. They've got a 14-year-old daughter and they live on the Upper West Side and he wants to stay in the neighborhood, but they own a co-op. So, you know, we've determined that his best place right now is to just find a rental, you know, in the area 
until everything, the dust settles, as it were, yep. and then they can figure out how to buy something as well. And actually, I'm so glad that you brought that up because you talked about finding a rental until the dust settles. And talk to me about that decision of post-divorce, buying a new property and moving or renting. I well, feel like every situation is unique, but what should yeah. people be thinking about to figure out what is the right answer for them and their family? Well, I think one of the considerations, obviously, if you have kids, if you're in a certain zone, you know, and I'm again, going back to Manhattan, if your child is going to school in a certain neighborhood and they, you know, you move all the way downtown and you got to take three subway lines to get to where the new rental apartment is, it's going to be onerous on, on the child. So hopefully they think about that and do it, you know, and, and adjust accordingly. But again, it, everybody's situation is so different. You know, I worked with a client, lovely woman who really didn't get a great deal on her divorce. So instead of, you know, he's lives in an $8 million apartment, she's living in a $7,000 rental. And it makes it, you know, very difficult on the kids because they are going from two different worlds. And yeah. he's obviously not the greatest guy and doesn't really help her out. I had nothing to do with the divorce, you know, obviously, but, you know, we try to work with every client and, and try to figure out the best way to get to the right property. And I work with yeah. a team that really does that on the financial side of it to make sure that they can pass a board or even get through the rental process. A lot easier, obviously, when you're, you know, in Westchester or out in the suburbs dealing with houses where you're only dealing with one person who's a, a rental entity or owns the property. Or if, you know, you have a condo owner who will consider who that person is rather than how much they have. Yeah, you bring up such a good point. We all know that the New York market is really on fire and that has a big impact. But I will tell you, there are so many markets across the U.S., Miami, Austin, yeah. out in certain parts, not all of California, but we're seeing that the price of housing has increased far beyond the normal growth rate that we've seen in, in the past. And so it's becoming more and more expensive. I'd love to hear from you, Seth, with these higher prices mm -hmm. for housing, what's someone able to do and we talked about if they're the stay-at-home spouse or they don't have significant income to show, but what if they're self-employed? There's this push and pull for self-employed individuals. Mm -hmm. You work with your CPA, and right. that goal is to show as little an income <laughs> as possible. You know, on the other hand, Seth, we're going to talk to you. That's going to box you in and put you right. in a corner and make it really hard. So how do those individuals who are self-employed that are showing very little income, very tax savvy strategy, be able to buy something in this market and afford right. it? Good question. So two parts to that, I guess. The first part being prices have been rising for a while now, but at the same time now, for the first time in a long time, we have dramatically higher rates than we did three months ago. Rates rose the fastest pace since I've been doing this in 15 years. And by no means am I saying rates are high now, it's just anybody who'd been thinking to do anything within the last two years is getting sticker shock. You have a combination of those two things happening right now. So there is a small percentage of people that truthfully no longer qualify, unfortunately. If you had been at the top of that qualification, whether it was 26% for the co-op board or whether it was 49% for the lender, a couple hundred dollars, you're now, you don't qualify. 
And so you have a group of people that unfortunately fall into that where they might just have to look for a less expensive property. It is what it is, whether that's maybe outside the city or looking, you know, further out, you know, maybe in Suffolk County as opposed to Nassau, it depends. So it really depends on your neighborhood and you might have been unfortunately priced out of certain areas. Mm -hmm. But the flip side of that is that self-employed borrowers, not as scary as you think. If you're listening and you own a small business or a large business, you know, you need to make sure that you're working with a mortgage broker. And the reason, and we'll get into in a minute, you know, the difference between a mortgage broker and a mortgage banker. But the main reason I I say that right now is because as a self-employed borrower, you want options. You want to know that there's different ways to structure your loan and that there's all different lenders that are going to really look at your income different ways. You have, you know, your vanilla Fannie and Freddie situations where, The lenders are going to look at your last one year of tax returns, maybe two years of tax returns. If you were to walk into a Wells Fargo or a Chase or a big bank, they're they're definitely going to want to see two years tax returns as opposed to many, many of my wholesale lenders. We only need one year of tax returns. And the reason I specifically mentioned that in today's world is because two years ago, it was 2020. And a lot of self-employed borrowers had their worst year ever in 2020. Exactly. Yeah. But 2021 might have possibly, truthfully, been their best year ever. So mm-hmm. it's a very interesting situation right now where if you've been in business for at least five years, that's the general rule, we would only need your 2021 returns. So right now, anybody that's on extension, I'm having conversations with their CPA and we're going and we're saying, you know what, this is the time where unfortunately you're not going to be the hero and saving them all this money will come tax time, but you will be the hero because they're going to qualify for the mortgage. They're going to have to show, you know, show as much income as possible in this one year. And let's, you know, we're planning, we're, you know, the plan of attack is you're buying some in 22, 22. And the good news is we could use those 2021 returns all the way up until midway 2023, because you can then go on extension for 2022 and the lender would still be using 2021. Yeah. So timing right now, the last couple of months, I've been speaking to a ton of CPAs in that, in that very situation where they're getting ready to file their returns just like they've done every year, right? And show relatively the same amount of income, maybe more, maybe less, but we need to know, you know, okay, can the client going to have to pay a little bit more in taxes, but, you know, we're going to, you know, an extra $50,000 goes a long way. So yeah. with, with the increasing prices and increasing rates, yeah, you could be someone who is going to have to pay a little bit more in taxes, maybe this year, next year, but, you know, help you qualify for that mortgage. But like I said, there's many ways to use different forms of self-employed income that big banks don't know how to use. So Seth, you said what you're talking about, and I I think it's so important to Mm -hmm. stress this, is what you're talking about is you're talking about starting early. You're talking about working with a professional sooner than later to set yourself up for success and create that picture of the most ideal candidate. And I will tell you, and I'm just going to throw my hand up. I bought this house of my dreams in Vermont. It is stunningly gorgeous. We will have it till we die and and Mm -hmm. we plan on retiring there. But it was a real pretty penny. It came on the market very quickly. Mm -hmm. And we made a decision that this is the house of our dreams. We're going to go ahead and, and make that move. Because I'm self-employed, I didn't have the ability to have that time to restructure the way that my tax returns look. Didn't matter how much I actually really make. Seth, I will tell you, it was really difficult. And so, you know, of 2020, I wish I had shown a heck of a lot more income because I actually made a lot more income. And so, Mark, I want to talk to you. What are some of the things that as far as planning and going ahead, I'm going to ask you the million dollar question that 
I kind of feel bad asking, but what should people be doing now? Should they wait for rates to come down? Because I know and you the, get that question. We, I know we, you yeah, get that we question. Do. We, we get it a lot. And, and an assessor is saying, you know, listen, it's all relative. We've seen the lowest rates in the history of rates for 50 years in the last couple of years. Exactly. And now that they're going up, people, yeah, people are freaking out. But if you look at it historically, we're still in a <laughs> very good rates. Right. And I would say continue to take advantage of these rates because when I started in the business 15, 20 years ago, we were looking at 12%. Oh my God. You know, that, exactly. that, that, like, that you just took my you just took <laughs> yeah. my breath away. My parents' so, first mortgage was 17%. Yeah. So when it came down to 10, people were like, oh my God, this is fantastic. Correct. So everything in perspective, right? But just as you were saying before, being prepared is the most important thing. We try to get our clients financially situated so that we know what their credit rating is. We know we get all mm -hmm. these things done ahead of time. And you'll be surprised people don't know what their finances are. I mean, you're not going to be surprised, Stacey, because you go through this all the time. But people say, oh, well, I want to, they come to me, oh, I want to buy, you know, an apartment for $2 million. Well, that's great. Okay. Well, we have a 1.5 in retirement and IRA that we can't touch. But they don't realize that when they're doing it. Or if you do a credit check on them, you know, somebody's done something to their credit that they're not even aware of. So the last thing you want to do is find that out when the co-op board is doing their credit search or even, you know, Seth is. Right. So to get some of these things handled ahead of time. Mm -hmm. But listen, there's no best time to buy or sell. It depends on your situation. Mark, can you act as a sounding board for a couple that's thinking about possibly selling their primary home during a divorce or, you know, their vacation home. Can you give them a opinion of, well, most likely it's going to be sold for the range of X to, to Y? Of course. I mean, pricing yeah. in this market is imperative, especially on the sales side. And it's always good. I, I encourage sellers to go and interview other brokers and see what, what's going on out there. But it's not always about price. A broker can come in and say, listen, you know, your property is worth X amount of dollars. I had this very similar situation. A uh, couple came to us. They want, they needed to sell. They were divorcing. We priced the property at 4.5 million. It was a beautiful condo in Lincoln Center. And a couple of other brokers came in and another broker said, oh, we'll definitely get you 5.5 million. Oh, so wow. of course they're saying, well, if we're splitting this, let's try to get the most that we can. It was yeah. never going to sell at that price. And it was on the market for two years during the whole time. And the last price that they were selling it at was two seven. Oh my God. Because they watched the market come down the whole way while they were on the market. Yeah. So, you know, you really have to be smart about yep. who you're hiring yeah. and do some research yourself because it ruined the apartment for sale yeah. because they could have gotten four and a half or even four, as opposed to two, seven. Yeah. Mark, so this is a question I actually don't know the answer to, and I hope I'm not putting you on the spot. What's the difference between a formal appraisal for a divorce, like a real estate appraisal from an appraiser versus an expert opinion from a real estate agent like yourself? It's based on what you're looking for. If you're looking for a higher price, how are you going to use this in the divorce yeah. going forward? But an appraiser, they're looking at numbers from six months ago because right. the closings happened that are happened in the last couple of months, they were determined six months prior or three to six months prior. And a 
a letter from a broker is going to tell you what you can get now. Got it. That's really savvy. So all of us savvy ladies listening out there, going forward, you see the property having a higher price and you want to buy it out from your spouse. And maybe you want to look at an appraisal, hope, you know, hoping that that appraiser comes back with a lower number. But depends um, on the, how the market was. Yeah, it could yeah. Have been I mean, higher. hoping, it could have been hoping that the market was then. lower down there or, or right. higher. Yeah. Right. So, so, so that's that's definitely a strategy. Yeah, yeah. And I you're mean, the first also, person to ever tell me that that is one of the factors that makes you guys different. Interesting. It also works with estate planning as well. Yes, for purposes of, of settling in the state. Exactly. All right, so Seth, I'm going to go to you for the big, big, big question. You referred to this a little bit um, when you first were introducing yourself of those commercials you see on TV. And I saw one right. last night because I was watching yeah. TNT and we didn't buy TNT. So the TNT and the show I was watching we had commercials every 10 minutes. It was unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. but I loved it because I haven't seen commercials in years. So one was on and it was talking about 0% down. And mm. I was like, are you kidding me? There's got to be a catch. But you see those. So mm-hmm. what is a healthy down payment? And sure. what do mortgage companies look for? So since we have Mark on and we, we touched about Manhattan co-ops and, and that animal and even condos, I'll... I'm going to talk uh, about basically two different scenarios. Manhattan condos and co-ops being their own animal and, and co-ops in general, in general, for example, we're doing a lot in Florida right now. In the board's eyes, you're probably going to need 20, 30, maybe even more. Let's just say 20% is a healthy number for a Manhattan co-op or a condo. On the higher end, it could be more. But the, as far as the lending side goes, you can be, depending on your loan size, loan size is very important in the lending world, you can be as little as, truthfully, 3.5% down if you did an FHA loan, which you can, let's say, on a mixed use or a multifamily or a single family, you know, outside of Manhattan, you know, condos and co-ops. Or for a conventional Fannie and Freddie loan, it's 5%. So for, you know, a lot of the suburbs and single family homes, that's a very common 5% down, you know, it's a normal vanilla loan. The 0% town that you might have seen would only be for a VA loan. So veterans, veterans, absolutely 0% down, whether we could do 100% financing on a refi or a purchase. It's a great market for veterans. So if anyone's listening who is a veteran, make sure you you check your eligibility and and see if you're eligible for a VA loan. Even if you have one already, you'd be surprised, depending on your scenario, you could potentially get another one. But yeah, that might have been the commercial, but otherwise you're correct. 100%. It's some type of marketing gimmick by a big bank to get you to go to their website, give them a call, and then they'll just sell you something different. Unless it was truthfully a VA lender, then yes. Yeah. Awesome. And those VA loans, I just actually worked with somebody. Mm-hmm. They discovered that it only works to a certain point at a, a cost correct. of the property. Once you're looking at properties that are a million and up, it really makes sense just to get a regular loan. Yeah, I mean, it depends. A good thing is that there is no limit for the VA loan. So, I mean, it's possible that that individual was working with a bank that did have a cap. But in general, if you have enough options, I I could do a $5 million VA loan, but there's limits as far as what the eligibility is of the veteran. So yeah, you have to be careful. You have to do your research. Absolutely. 100%. Well, well, actually, this is the perfect thing to wrap up with. So I have two questions for both of you. And the goal of these questions is to, for everyone listening today, to have resources, because that's what my real mission is, I mean, so many women go through divorce and they they don't have their team in place. They need to get a solid team. And the two of you are really important parts of the team. Seth, can you talk about what you do as a mortgage mm-hmm. broker and how that's different than a mortgage banker? Because this is sure. a an area that most borrowers have no clue about. 
it's usually the first topic I have with people, a uh, conversation I have with people. And it's very important because for the history of uh, doing this, it's been the, uh, you know, the biggest misconception. So when you go to a, a retail lender, as we like to call it, let's say Chase, Wells, Bank of America, and you name them, your odds are either calling or walking into one of their retail branches. And they have thousands of those retail branches. And they have tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands of employees all making a salary. So most likely, people who work at those banks are going to be looking for the best interests of their employer, which is you know Wells Fargo, Chase, Bank of America, whoever. And in order to make their employer happy and keep getting their salary, they're going to sell you the client, whatever product their lender has available, which could be one, two, three, five products. And hopefully, that's the right product for you, Mrs. Borrower. Unfortunately, it's most likely not going to be either the right product or best product, or maybe even the best price, maybe it is the right product, but you can get a better deal somewhere else. And you as the individual, when there's thousands of lenders out there, just would not have the time and the ability to find out really who is the best deal. Similar to getting car insurance, you know, you could go directly to State Farm or Allstate, or you can go to an insurance broker that has a thousand options for you. So in my world, I currently work with 55 lenders. What that means is that all those lenders are fighting for my business. I'm not employed by any of them. Instead, my job is to be a real consultant for the borrower, make sure we find the right lender, the best lender with the best rate who qualifies you and can close quickly and fulfill all your goals. At the end of the day, I don't really care so much as to who the bank is that we close with as long as my client's happy and we get exactly what they need. So it's a huge difference when dealing with someone who's a licensed true professional, which is another aspect to it. I have federal exams and state exams and fingerprinting that I have to do where, as weird as it sounds, if you work at a bank, you actually don't have to have any of that. It's a whole different world. And when my number one goal is client satisfaction and not just making the lender happy because I have unlimited amounts of lenders to choose from, that benefit gets passed along to the borrower in terms of a better rate, better service, and hopefully a stress-free mortgage process. You know, That's yeah. our goal. Getting a mortgage should not be as difficult as everyone used to think. I love it. I love it. Now, Mark, I'd love for you to talk about where you help, you know, where you, the areas where you serve, you know, throughout all of New York. And then for our listeners, can they contact you? I know that your firm, you know, has offices all over the U.S. Can you share if you can find them resources of partners that can help them with their real estate in their local area? Oh, absolutely. Brown Harris Stevens has uh, offices everywhere. But more importantly, I'm make it a point to connect with other brokers throughout the country so that if somebody says, I have a house in Berkeley, California, and I need to sell it, I already know brokers in Berkeley, California that can help. Nice. And I've already vetted them, which yeah. is more important. You know, as far as Manhattan, my partner and I work all throughout Manhattan. We do some Brooklyn as well, but it's just us. Yeah. You get us, you don't need us. And then we send you out with the assistant who's 25 years old and can't have any empathy for what you're going through and what the situation is. My partner and I, we do the showings, we go out with you, we handhold you for the whole process. And yep. we make sure that whatever the picture you have financially, we will present it to the co-op board so that you can pass that co-op board. It's very important to make sure that it's not just two steps and then you're off to somebody else. We get you through the whole process. Love it. And Mark, that's why I absolutely love you. 
I can't thank the two of you enough for coming. I know how crazy busy you are and we could talk for another hour, but wow, (laughs) did we get a lot of good information out. So again, Seth, thank you so much, Mark. Uh, My pleasure. Thank you Uh, so much. We can't thank you enough for having us. I love talking to you anytime, Stacey. I know it's fun. It's I just I love this. I could do this all day. And my family loves when I talk to other people because otherwise I'm like trying to initiate them in conversations. And they're like, mom, especially my teenager, not so impressed with that. It's not so impressed. So all right. Big hugs. Thank you to the both of you. Thank Thank you. you. Appreciate it. Welcome to Financially Ever After. I am your host, Stacey Francis. And today we are talking about real estate, real estate, real estate. Instead of one expert today, we are bringing two experts to you. The first is Seth Feynman, and he's been working in the area of mortgages for over 15 years at Silverfin Capital. In addition to being a licensed, accomplished mortgage loan originator, he also helps manage a fantastic team there. What Seth is most proud of is working one-on-one with clients, finding the best loan product based on their unique situation. That's really important to me because for many of our clients, going through divorce, income is reduced, assets are reduced, and all of a sudden qualifying for a mortgage is not so easy. Our second guest is Mark D. Friedman, who works at Brown, Harris, and Stevens. He's one of the top real estate brokers with his partner there for the last 10 years, winning numerous awards, including top team, in 2021. Not only is he an expert about the Manhattan market, but the reason I wanted him to join is his expertise and knowledge of sharing just about buying and selling all over the country. And I have to tell you, make sure you stay to the end because guess what? You're going to find out how you can have lenders fight for your business, how you can put down in your down payment as low as 5%, even 3%. Mark also He'll share with us, should you wait for interest rates to drop? And what do sellers look for to make sure that you win out over others who want to buy that property? So without further ado, please help me welcome our fantastic guests today, Seth Feynman and Mark D. Freeman. I was really so happy to have these two fantastic guests. And as we know, real estate is a part of nearly every single divorce. And there are so many questions. My hope is that many of those questions were answered today. But if you have any outstanding worries or questions about your personal situation, I want you to reach out to me. You can reach me at stacy at francisfinancial.com and we'll talk about what's important to you, what matters, and what we can do to make sure that you're put on the path to financial freedom. We're certified divorce financial analysts And we are here to help you through the entire process of your divorce, answering those questions, being your advocate, and making sure that you get your fair share. Again, reach out to me. You can reach me on my email, or you can go to our website, www.francisfinancial.com. Thank you so much for joining me at Financially Ever After. We'll see you in two weeks. I was really so happy to have these two fantastic guests. And as we know, real estate is a part of nearly every single divorce. And there are so many questions. My hope is that many of those questions were answered today. 
But if you have any outstanding worries or questions about your personal situation, I want you to reach out to me. You can reach me at stacy at francisfinancial.com and we'll talk about what's important to you, what matters, and what we can do to make sure that you're put on the path to financial freedom. We're certified divorce financial analysts, and we are here to help you through the entire process of your divorce, answering those questions, being your advocate, and making sure that you get your fair share. Again, reach out to me. You can reach me on my email, or you can go to our website, www.francisfinancial.com. Thank you so much for joining me at Financially Ever After. We'll see you in two weeks.